Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine and uh, your host for today's broadcast. Um, not joining us today will uh, will be our norm- usual co-host, uh, Joe Medosh, who is battling a, a bout with uh, poison ivy <laughs> as we as we speak. So that's kind of interesting. Um, we're really excited to have you guys all back here. We have a large, large uh, live studio audience today. So the second half of the show, we will be uh, taking your questions live. Um, what I would like to do is, again, to our virtual audience, remind you uh, that we'll have your cameras off for the first half of the show, but then we'll invite you to turn your cameras on and use the reaction button down below. We hit raise hand and our moderator, Susan Valenti, will uh, let you come in and ask questions of our guests. So um, so that's basically where we're at for the show. So we're, we're it's been almost a year since we've been dealing with uh, the pandemic in, in full force. Um, and not coincidentally, it's been a year since we launched the uh, Healthy Indoors uh, weekly live stream show. We did that in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So here we are a year later, and today's show, uh, the topic is uh, looking back at some of the things that we've learned uh, over this uh, arduous year with the pandemic, as well as some of the things that we can maybe expect looking forward. Um, so with that, we have uh, two uh, really uh, great guests here. Um, and potentially our third guest who has has not uh, logged in yet, but so I'd like to uh, do some introductions. Uh, Dr. Richard Corsi, uh, he's the Dean of the Massey College of Engineering and Computer Science at Portland State University. He previously served at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, at UT, Dr. Corsi and his research team have studied indoor air quality from sources uh, to fate and control of pollutants of both indoor and outdoor origin. And, His team was the first to incorporate a complex outdoor atmospheric chemistry algorithm into a model for indoor atmospheres. And his team also studied disinfectant interactions in byproduct formation with a wide range of indoor materials, potential uh, passive removal materials to uh, quench indoor chemistry and indoor SOA formation in actual homes and laboratory chambers in the presence of uh, common uh, consumer products. So Dr. Corsi's work has been featured in The Economist, National Geographic, New York Times, Washington Post, CBC, The Nature of Things, and NPR Science Friday, and a lot more. So welcome, Rich. Great to have you here. It's coming to us live from uh, the West Coast. And also, uh, returning champion, it's great to have have him back, uh, Dr. Krauss. Dr. David Krauss was with us a lot last year in the early stages of COVID. He was one of our voices of reason on uh, he's founder of Healthcare Consulting and Contracting, HC3, and is a certified industrial hygienist and toxicologist with 25 years of experience in public health, occupational hazard assessments, and indoor air quality. It's actually 26 years now. This is last year's bio. Uh, David has expertise in risk assessment, workplace exposures, healthcare facilities, Legionnaire's disease, combustion products, flame retardants, irritant chemical exposures, indoor air quality, and mold being in Florida. Uh, From 2008 to 11, he served as the state toxicologist for the Florida Department of Health, and he co-authored the 2009 guidelines for the surveillance, investigation, and control of Legionnaire's disease in Florida, and a whole bunch of other documents. He's been on a lot of committees, and David's been a regular uh, guest on our show over the years. So welcome, guys. It's really great to see you. Um, Thanks for having us. 
So, you know, first off, here we are, we're a, a year plus into the pandemic, but, you know, from our perspective, a year since we've been uh, talking about it on our show, um, we've learned a few things, <laughs> I think, but I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I have, I have to point to um, uh, Dr. Corsi, Rich had a, a, a tweet that he put out um, from an article in uh, Fast Company. Uh, talking about uh, air purification. And I'm, I'm not going to jump into that right now, but just to say, here we are a year into this and we're still discussing what methodologies might or might not work. That's, <laughs> you know, so, so I guess my first question, you know, let, let's talk in terms of, are there control measures that we should be implementing now that we've learned in this past year that are not commonplace yet, or maybe are still not being fully implemented. What should, what's the, what's the most one of the most important things we should be doing right now? And I'll let either of you jump in on this. David, well, <laughs> okay, right, that's passing um, the hot potato. Nice. Yes, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's great being here, and and I I'm going to still claim 25 years because I don't think last year counted. Um, <laughs> I think we. Uh, as a society, as a country, we've, um, the one thing we should have done that we didn't do throughout uh, as, a, as a blanket statement is we ignored the science. And there's just a, uh, a, a, we can spend the entire show going over the missed opportunities that we had. So whether we start with proper cleaning and disinfection, uh, proper and effective ventilation, proper and effective air cleaning, I would say for the most part, those were not broadly implemented. And, um, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved if we had as a society endorsed, implemented, and uh, did those in, a, in an effective manner? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that David just said. I would add that, that um, this is an airborne infectious disease and it has been since the start. It has been throughout, it is now, and it will continue to be. And the way you deal with airborne infectious diseases is you remove virus laden particles from the air. And you can do that, you know, the proven ways of doing that are increasing ventilation. Um, and there's an art to ventilation. I, I consider ventilation to be a technology, right? It's, it's an approach that has to be done right, but if done right, can dramatically reduce virus-laden particles in the air. And then beyond that, it's improved filtration uh, in mechanical systems. It's uh, standalone HEPA filtration systems. It's uh, ultraviolet germicidal irradiation. Those are the proven technologies, along with masks, of course, which is the easy, simple, low-cost way of reducing inhalation dose. So it's masks, ventilation, filtration, UVGI, proven technologies. And we, you know, those are the things that should have been hammered over and over and over and over again from February of last year. And, and it wasn't, and there's still a lot of confusion and there's still a lot of people that are spending a lot of money on unproven technologies and increasingly proven to be ineffective technologies because we didn't hammer home over and over and over again, the proven workhorses. Yeah. Richard, Richard, one of the things that you, that you, you just mentioned there, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to load on, on top of that. There were systems in place. There are agencies in place. There are rules, regulations, and laws at the state and federal level that should have and could have forestalled 
so many of these unproven, novel, and frankly, ineffective technologies that were thrown out there without a lick of evidence or proof. And under normal times, that, those agencies sh should have stepped in and said, no, if you're going to make these claims, you have to have this proof. And that simply was, they were given a pass. And I think that's, that, that sidelined resources, it, it, it drew, drew away people's attentions. Um, I can, you know, the, the dream of they can do it cheaper and faster and simpler. Um, I, I think that we, we were failed in that, in that manner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're always going to have, you know, you're going to have everything come out of the woodwork whenever there's a crisis, right? You know, I mean, we, we see it when there's a major uh, weather event, right? You know, you have a major hurricane, and next thing you know, there's all these resolutions to the mold, you know, subsequent mold issues. And some of them are okay resolutions and provide some sort of relief, and some are, some are quite frankly, uh, not so great solutions. And in the case of the pandemic, I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen, you know, with the show, right, for doing this over the past year, is that there just seemed to be a lot of, first of all, lack of information out there, you know, from the credible authorities that you'd like to hear it from. And then um, a lot of misinformation. I mean, just the whole thing on masks, right, the mask and respirator thing, you know, just just the confusion that, you know, referring to N95 respirators as masks. You know, that was that was my bone of contention back a year ago. OK, they're respirators. They're 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 regulated under the OSHA, you know, OSHA Respiratory Protection Program. Um, they're very effective devices. Right. Um, but they got called. They were referred to as masks. And I think the, the the misstatement early on, or at least the lack of confusion on the part of CDC and all really all the cognizant bodies is that, um, you know, masks are for protecting those around you. Right. A doctor, a surgeon wears a, a surgical mask to stop from spewing his droplets into the operating theater, into the patient's open cavity. Right. Not to protect him from the patient. He's wearing the mask to protect the patient. Right. And, and so masks are for protecting those around you, more of a social responsibility thing, whereas a respirator is for protecting you. That's personal protective equipment. You know, and it, it, to me, the fact we never even got that right. You know, here we are a year later and people are still saying it wrong. I mean, do you find that as part, part of the problem? Well, I'll say that I think semantics were part of the problem at the, from the very start. There was a lot of debate about whether to call this airborne or not to call it airborne and these kinds of things. Uh, you know, to your point, though, I think one of the things we've really learned looking back on the past year is that, as you say, Bob, masks are to protect people around you. But there's been some great research done by a number of research teams in North America that show that those masks, which are intended to protect people around you, are also some of them with the right material and the right fit can be pretty effective at protecting you too. They're not N95. They're not going to give you a 20 fold, you know, reduction in inhalation dose, but they may give you a 50, 60, 70% reduction. And that's pretty good, right? So it's not just, mm. it just, it's not just people around you. It's, if I can get a 70% reduction in my inhalation dose by wearing a non N95 mask, I'll take that. Sure. I mean, that, and I guess I guess that is the point um, that it does. There, there's some effect. Right. And even the face shields, the, the large droplets. Right. Because I, I, I think the, the consensus is still that the more viral particles you're exposed to, the higher the potential for infection and uh, a, a worse case outcome. Right. The more the more that you are exposed to. It's not so much one single viral particle, but a heavier load is potentially more problematic. Well, you mean you mean there's there's an important aspect of dose? Dose <laughs> makes the poison infectious dose. I mean, these are all you know. We've only known this for what a thousand, two thousand years. 
come on. It, I think one of the things we need to look at as a, as a society and as a profession is that much of the, um, as, you, as you called it, uh, confusion was frankly disinformation. It was inaccurate information put out by people who should have known better, period. And people's lives were affected by that. The CDC and every public health agency just was scared to death of admitting this was an airborne disease. And even today, they, they skirt around the subject and are still trying to convince us that by washing our hands, we can control an airborne disease. Well, okay? I mean, so yeah. Or disinfecting the desks in the school, you know, disinfecting the desks in the school between each class. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that has a part that plays a part, but uh, you know, has someone who trained in chemical warfare, you can wash your hands all day long and wear the gloves and wear the boot and wear the suit. But if you don't put on the respirator, you're going to die. So, (laughs) you know, we, we, we got to fix this because the next viral pathogen, hell, it may be bacterial. If we don't come to terms with being able to acknowledge that there's an, a contagious infectious disease that kills people, um, we will revisit this entire scenario again. So if we don't fix the, the public health messaging and the thought processes behind it, then we will, we'll, we'll play this again on Groundhog Day. You're suggesting learning though, you know, learning, learning from our experiences, which apparently we all uh, like, you know, collectively turned our brains off a year ago um, because it, it wasn't like, this is something we, we've, we've faced global pandemics before in this world. This is not, this is not new. Yeah, but it took a but, long time. Because you can't of... see the pathogen. Go ahead, Rich. I was just going to say, it took a long time for health authorities to accept the fact that influenza is an airborne infectious disease, that you can actually get influenza from inhaling air that has influenza viruses in it. So this is not new, and we haven't learned from our mistakes. And the problem, I think, from my perspective initially, is when this thing first started, we talked about direct contact, shaking somebody's hand who just wiped their nose, right? Number one, we talked about uh, fomites and we talked about close contact. There was a fourth pathway that was, as David said, essentially neglected and, and, and I wouldn't even say downgraded. It wasn't even talked about right at the start of this pandemic. And the lesson here is until we know for sure why let your da- why let your guard down on any pathway? I mean that 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 was the big mistake. Um, yeah. We basically said let's assume these are the three, and let's forget about this one because that one's really hard. In fact, there were even statements made early on by WHO, by World Health Organization, and I don't remember the exact comment that was made, but it was something to the effect of, well, some countries would have a hard time dealing with this if it was airborne implying that somehow implying that you can like choose what it is right i mean it was just it was a it was just a a statement that just blew me away when i heard it and uh yeah yeah. and there was more than enough evidence that this was airborne it it was it was blatantly ignored and then there was uh and, and i think what has 
crippled much of the uh, credibility of the CDC and, and other public health agencies is some of their early, uh, very loud uh, statements that masks don't make a difference. You shouldn't wear them. We need to save them for healthcare. So the public shouldn't have them. That is wrongheaded thinking. That is, you know, no, we need to keep people out of the hospital so healthcare isn't overwhelmed. But because of our, you know, my, my first sergeant used to have a, uh, a sign on his desk and he said, you, you know, your lack of uh, planning does not constitute an emergency on my part. And that's kind of where we were. We were in a true emergency, but the, the lack of planning for the available public, uh, you know, PPE and respiratory protection was, was palpable. Well, I mean, yeah. you're back to you're back to that mask debate, though, still, you know, right, because it's like ma masks were masks can be readily available. People can wear cloth masks, you know, and, and have some effect of, you know, stopping their their uh, distribution pattern. But, um, you know, OK, so maybe there was a shortage of uh, N95 respirators and other PPE, which is another story. That's a sidebar. Like, I still don't I can't accept the fact that that was the case. But that's another, you know. And we, we, we can go down that rabbit hole in, in a minute. Um, so, again, but the messaging's still not straight. You still got a good percentage of the American population who are, you know, don't believe in wearing any type of uh, facial protective covering, you know, uh, you know, making it more of a personal right statement, you know, as opposed to making it, uh, you know, worried about the uh, social responsibility of you, you know, you taking responsibility for yourself in, in the society. It's crazy. I, I will say that that is another lesson I think that we've learned over the past year is that they had uh, health scientists, medical doctors on television all the time. Um, we had aerosol scientists who've had less of a voice, engineers who've had less of a voice, industrial hygienists who've had a lot less of a voice. And the, the group that's been completely missing the last year are behavioral scientists. You know, I never hear any behavioral scientist speaking about what we could have done to better communicate to the public and ways, ways in which the public absorbs information and how to reach a larger fraction of the public on those kinds of critical issues. Well, well Rich, I think one of the, the, the failings on our part about um, risk communication to people, uh, we relied upon and still, you know, we, I hear the, 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 the tone of, masks are there to protect those around you. That's an altruistic view of the world. Um, the reality of this world is self-preservation. And if the discussion had been rather, a mask will give you 75% protection against this, rather than it's gonna protect your grandmother, I bet more people would have worn masks because they thought it would have protected them rather than protecting others. Yeah. Self-preservation is a strong motivator. And, and I, think, I think the lack of understanding that as inhalation dose increases, your probability of becoming infected increases. And if you do become infected, if you're infected at a lower dose, you're likely to have a better outcome than if you're infected at a very high dose. Going back to what you said earlier, David, is that the dose makes the poison. In this case, it's the dose makes the infection. And that was never, that's never communicated well to the public. Yeah. And David, you touched on something that I think is, is critical here earlier, too, is that this is not a one off. You know, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of consensus that these these events, right, these, you know, having having pathogen, 
pathogens jump from the animal kingdom to you know to the human environment you know that that that's being exacerbated by our you know what's going on with the climate and warming and just just what we're doing to the planet I mean, we're, we're creating a perfect storm to continue these type of transgressions of these you know infectious agents that come over and be a problem right so this is as, as much as people would like to hope this was a once in a hundred year event it it may well not be so we need to learn right well get, getting back onto the the, the human uh, psychosocial react response to threats and hazards um, I think one of the biggest problems we have might be the lack of uh, science education that, that, or the diminution in science education in uh, schools across America over the past 50 years. But I noticed that when people can't see something and they can't perceive it, can't see it, smell it, or touch it, or taste it, then the risk that it poses, their, their perceived risk is tremendously uh, lower. If this had been Godzilla, our response would have been tremendous. If this had been another country invading us, our response would have been tremendous. We do good at dealing with, you know, big scale disasters that we can see the monster. When the monster is microscopic and we can't see it, we tend to ignore it at, at our own peril. I think that's a great point. I would, I would. I would maybe even narrow it and focus it a little bit more. Another example is that, that I've found during my career that the public has a much greater affinity for things that are in water than things that are in air. And maybe, maybe part of that is you don't see the air, right? But you do see the water, you wash your hands in it, you bathe in it, you swim in it, you drink it, right? And if I tell you there's a little bit of something bad in your water, the public goes bonkers and demands that that be removed from the water. If I say that there's a little, you know, there's a little bit that's bad in the air, nobody cares. You know, it's, it's, there's this strange affinity with water that the American public had. I think part of that is water is good. Water is fun. We go to water to vacation. We go to water on weekends. We're, we're very much, water is very much part of our psyche and air is not. And I think it's harder for people to come to grips with something that you're inhaling than something that's in the water that you're drinking. Which you realize how crazy that is? It's like, because you're only going to last a few minutes without air. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, just the fact that I think you're absolutely right, by the way, Rich, on, on that. I think you, you, you nailed it. But it, it, it's crazy that we, you know, that we as a society uh, think that way. And do you think you think it's more, is this more of a, a U.S. mindset or is, it, is this like a global mindset? You know, that's a great question. I, you know, we do know that in uh, in Asian countries, uh, when there was a, you know, mentioned that there's this, in, this viral infection that's spreading, you saw masks go on to everybody right away. South Korea, Taiwan, China, uh, you know, the whole Western end of the Pacific Rim was masked. And so I think that it, there, is, there is a history there where people understand that the precautionary principle is important when it comes to infection spread. And so for them, I think it's different than us for sure. <clears throat> I think the Europeans are tend to be a little bit more like we are. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit more broad brush. I think there's idiots everywhere. I think there are people who in, in every culture, in every society, there are wing nuts and crackpots and people who wouldn't believe, you know, that, that believe the earth is flat. 
Yeah. It is flat today. It'll be flat tomorrow. Um, it's going to be a portion of every society, and that's your vulnerability. That's the that's the vulnerable population who's going to catch it first, who's going to spread it first, who's going to give uh, future pandemics a foothold. And you know, I, I think it's a matter of early surveillance of those populations of people who are at high risk because of either what they do or what they believe or what they don't know and then to take action there. But I, I don't think you're going to get rid of that part of human nature. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, but we, we, you know, if, if we don't learn from our past mistakes and, and I'm saying this categorically across the globe, this, you know, not, not just point, you know, doing my, uh, you know, complaining uh, about how we handle it as a country, which I think was abysmal, but that's another story. Uh, but in, in general, right. If, if we don't, if we don't actually take some uh, uh, some forward-thinking, proactive uh, action here, you know, are, are are we doomed to having this just repeat this thing all over again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do want to say that the United States is particularly inclined to not invoke the precautionary principle in all aspects of our lives. The Europeans are a little more con- inclined to do so, especially Northern Europeans. So, you know, you look at indoor air quality as a general field, there has been a lot more over the last several decades uh, in European countries that are focused on reducing certain uh, consumer products and building materials that can be used in buildings that are known to emit, uh, you know, emit chemicals that can be harmful to occupants of buildings. We don't see that kind of thing in the United States other than occasionally in California. Um, But so there's a there's a bit more of an inclination towards precautionary principle outside of the United States than in the United States. So you know, so, and on a broad scale, we're looking at this is a feedback loop. Just we're not disconnected from nature from from the natural world. Um, when when animal populations overpopulate, when animal populations, uh, you know, eat up too much of their food, or or you know, become too. Uh, detrimental to their environment, there's a feedback loop. And it often, and you know, it often includes uh, epidemics, pandemics, disease. Uh, and, and while we can, technology tempers that for humans, it does not make us immune from it. And I think it's a, it's a lesson in humility that we need to accept that um, if we don't pay attention, then we're going to suffer the consequences one way or another. And this may be just one of those aspects that we, we kind of got uh, ahead of ourselves. Well, I mean, clearly the planet will be here no matter how we handle things. You know, even climate change, you know, that's happened before. I mean, there, you know, we, we have, you know, man-induced accelerated climate change but let's you know let's face it you know the life on the planet got eradicated more than once and it's funny how the planet stays around you know it's like so you either learn or i guess you don't but it, so let's let's take a spin just quickly we're going to go into q a in a couple minutes here but um ventilation because we you know the ventilation aspect it, it's an aerosolized pathogen you know for the most part right i mean certainly there's you you can still uh contract potentially off of a high contact surface i mean certainly but the bigger problem is ventilation um so you know some of these solutions you know like can we can we take a a standalone air uh purifying device 
you know, and let's, let's say, and what, and, and there's different flavors of those, right? Are they filtration? Are they chemical? You know, so, uh, Rich, you, you mentioned a couple of them, but so what, what are some of the, the, the quick stopgap measures that you can do in a space at this point from a ventilation standpoint, aside from re-engineering an entire mechanical system? Right. So if we focus just on ventilation, right, if, if the system has, if, if the building, if the school, whatever it is, has a mechanical ventilation system, then, you know, it, me mechanical systems can, can be a little bit complex. So you can't just, you know, have a, a teacher go in and suddenly, you know, try to figure out how to increase the supply air to a classroom. But, you know, if you can open your outdoor air dampers, increase the amount of supply air, uh, that's coming in, outdoor air that's coming into uh, a classroom, um, disable demand control ventilation and energy savings method that, uh, you know, a lot of mechanical systems have nowadays, uh, so that even when people aren't in the classroom for an hour or 30 minutes or an office space for an hour or 30 minutes, you continue to reduce any virus-laden particles that are in the air. Those are smart things you can do with a mechanical system. If you don't have a mechanical system, and there are a lot of schools that don't, uh, if there are operable windows is to try to uh, open up a couple of windows and try to control the flow in and out using uh, using box fans in the windows. Um, and, you know, that that can increase, quote, natural ventilation. It's not quite natural ventilation if you have a box fan there, but that can increase ventilation of classrooms substantially if you don't have a mechanical system. And then I think supplemental HEPA filtration in classrooms can can be great. I mean, you can get sort of an equivalent of it, with a right-sized HEPA filtration system in a in a typical size classroom with 20, 25 students and a teacher, you can increase sort of equivalent ventilation or the equivalent air changes per hour, if you will, in terms of reduction of virus-laden particles by three to four air changes per hour. So there, those are simple things to do if you can do them. And in, in addition to wearing masks, you, you take masks and you layer onto that increased ventilation and you layer onto that good HEPA filtration. It's not that hard to get to 95% uh, inhalation dose reduction using those three steps. I'm, I'm sure David's going to chime in on this, but, you know, but I'd like to just, you know, one, one of my concerns, you know, I haven't been a practitioner in the years uh, as both a consultant and a contractor, and, you know, in, in you know, doing a lot of portable uh, air filtration um, in different spaces. I mean, one of the challenges I think in places like classrooms is that where do you locate a portable HEPA unit so that it's effectively going to be filtering air in the breathing zones of the occupants? You know, I mean, just wouldn't one of, I mean, I remember that the model that was in the New York Times a few weeks ago, the 3D uh, rendered model, and, you know, and it, and it was, it was citing, you know, just what you said, uh, Rich, you know, that, that there's, certainly an improvement by using that but it also it also showed in that in that rendering how it pulls potentially contaminated air across the breathing zones of others and its path to the uh, portable air filtration device yeah, yeah. I, I i'll throw this i'll throw this in there um i i think we we also we need to realize that uh, the vast majority of people on this on this call or in this uh uh, meeting is uh, are, are pretty geeky, and we all immediately start going into well, what if, what if, and we sometimes need to back it up and say, what about the natural human nature? And the first thing is, what can they do that's simple, fast, and then effective? That's people's prioritization. The simple thing is the mask. The fast are the HEPA filtered standalone units, and the effective long-term is the ventilation. 
when we threw ventilation out there first, most engineers, building operators, building owners, school district facility managers threw their hands up and said, it takes me 10 years to get budget to change a ventilation system. It takes me six months to get a permit. It takes me 18 months to get lead time on the equipment that I need to fix the building's ventilation system I much less upgraded. And so there's stop right there when there's an off the shelf technology that could have substantially and effectively reduced exposure by setting it in the room and plugging it in. And yes, there are fine tuning of, well, we might increase Janie's concentration of exposure over Joe's based upon the airflow directions. But when it comes down to it, you're diluting the overall concentration in the room. And then I've had engineers argue with themselves about, well, should the fans blow the air up or blow the air down? Or should we have uh, plug flow or laminar flow? You don't have any of that in a real building. Right. If, you ha- if you don't have anything, anything's an improvement. I mean, for that matter, Joe Medosh usually talks about, you know, using uh, one of the, the stopgap things that just a homeowner could do is go to Home Depot, buy a cheap 24-inch box fan, buy a 24 by 24 pleated 4-inch filter, tape that to the box fan with duct tape. It's going to give you some reduction of particles in the space. You know, and that's like a $40 implementation. Yeah, that's correct. I want to come back to your, to the, the point you made about, well, a, a port of a HEPA filter can cause air to flow, you know, by somebody and incre- increase their potential. That is a small probability, but I want to say that I'm a big fan of mixing. Um, I think, I think what ha- we haven't talked enough about the fact that one of the things that reduces close contact uh, inhalation dose is if you have good dispersion between individuals and the more mixing you have in a classroom, the more the things are going to disperse once they come out of somebody's mouth. And also, you know, mixing depending on the classroom or whatever the environment is can also dilute pollutants by using the, a greater volume of the room. And as David said, also, re- you know, reduce substantially uh, uh, aerosol particles just just by by virtue of the HEPA filtration system, so so I think there, that the benefits far outweigh the small probability that the 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 airflow patterns are going to lead to an infection. Yeah, and 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 and, and on that tail, public health officials and engineers will often say, well, you know, try to avoid having contaminated air flow to uncontaminated spaces you can't look at somebody and know whether they're emitting viruses. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's an academic question that doesn't belong in this conversation mm-hmm. unless you're in a healthcare setting where you have known infected people. So a lot of these things have been put out there to you know, make sure we said everything and, and make sure we didn't uh, you know, leave something out, but it added to the confusion right. that the general public mm-hmm. had. Right. Dead, and that's part, that's part of the problem. So yeah. we're going to open up. Bob, Bob, can I add, can I add absolutely, one more thing sure. Go ahead. about HEPA filtration? I, I have, I've put this out on social media recently, but I've done a calculation for a school district actually on the cost of, of uh, portable HEPA filtration in every classroom. And it turns out if you look at one classroom, the capital cost of a good HEPA filtration standalone system the recurring uh, filter replacement costs and the energy costs, and I used Oregon utility rates for that, um, turns out to be uh, over a three-year period, about $750 total. In a classroom where you have 25 students going through that classroom every year, that ends up to be 10 bucks per student per year 
for a significant reduction in inhalation dose. So the teacher, the staff, the students in the classroom, 10 bucks, that's two grande frappuccinos. And we have to remember that we yeah. spend about $15,000 per year per student in public schools in this country. So adding 10 bucks to 15,000 bucks to reduce inhalation dose to that extent seems like a no brainer. And well, I just, I'd also add that that's going to do more than just protect you from, you know, a, a, a pandemic. I mean, there's, there's a there's a long term sustained improved indoor environment. So let me let me uh, just change uh, change gears here. We, we're going to invite all of our uh, me, uh, members of the uh, virtual studio audience right now to turn your cameras on. Please, please do. Um, we're going to ask that you stay muted until such time as you ask a question. Um, Susan Valenti here, who I, I, I didn't really properly introduce you but Su susan is our uh, editor of healthy indoors magazine and uh she'll be she'll be handling the moderation of uh when you raise your hand allowing you to uh uh turn your mic on and ask a question of our panel and uh we're looking forward to some of some of your questions w while we're waiting for our first uh, few questions to come in um you know another thing that's that's kind of uh surprised me is that the, you mentioned earlier both of you did that there, there's technologies out there that are questionable and i know there's been there's been ongoing uh battles on twitter about this and you know there seems to be a lot of unproven technology in the marketplace and how do we combat like how is a consumer supposed to know i guess that's my question is how does the general public understand this because they're just inundated with marketing information if it's too good to be true, if it sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And the agencies that we've been paying for for decades to do their job and to regulate and register pesticides need to do their job, period. It's Ouch. not up to us to go out and police every snake oil salesman out there. There's an opinion. Susan. Okay, Dave. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here. Okay. Because like you say, if it's too good to be true, you know, there's something wrong. Okay. The consumer doesn't know anything about what's good, what's too good to be true. So what is the, what is the, the profession's obligation to, you know, educate, you know, and I, you know, and I get it, you know, there's nothing from FDA, from FTC, from CPSC, um, you know, even like even the CDC stuff is sketchy, in my opinion. Well, but and like, they're not a regulator. Like, no, but like EPA has an office of pesticides. Their entire mission is to review, register, uh, you know, uh, approve both, you know, chemicals as well as devices that we'll make approve? antimicrobial claims. They, they, argue, they argue that they don't do any approvals. You know, that, that's a semantics thing, but you know, it's, if, they if register under FIFRA. They register. So, so I will chime in and say that I think <laughs> what the responsible thing to do for everybody who's researched these devices, who understands indoor environments and building science, is to just keep pounding home these are the proven technologies over and over again. And there aren't that many of them, right? It's improved MERV ratings, you know, better filtration mechanical systems. It's uh, UVGI, which can be effective if done right, although it's tricky. And then portable HEPA filtration systems over and over and over again. And nothing else that wasn't on the list that I just mentioned is a proven technology. 
So stick to the workhorses, stick to what's proven. And I think what we're starting to see now are papers coming out, really good independent research being done that show that some of the things that are being sold in mass, on mass to school districts across the country are almost absolutely ineffective at doing what they claim to do. And when resources are precious, you don't want to purchase something that's completely ineffective. Why is that, Rich? Why, why, why are, why are the, these school districts purchasing things that are completely ineffective? How is this happening? Well, I think one is that my experience with working with school districts across Oregon is school districts look to the CDC. That seems to be the central authority everybody looks to, or their state health authorities, which look to the CDC. So it's essentially a, uh, a message from the CDC. The Centers for Disease Control is really good at what they're supposed to do, they're really lousy at building science. They don't understand ventilation. They don't understand engineering control systems. They don't understand those things. And, you know, ASHRAE has a lot of, the American Society for Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers have a lot of good information on their website, but the public has no clue what ASHRAE is, right? And they're not, they're not looking there um, for, for good information. Um, they're looking to CDC and, and CDC's messaging on, on ventilation and control systems has been uh, um, unfortunately uh, inadequate. Yeah, well, they had the opportunity. They, they did. Have within CDC, you've got an entire program called NIOSH. <laughs> and they had produced early on some of the best guidance on ventilated headboards with literally construction diagrams, parts materials that could have been used to reduce exposures in a number of settings. And it was all but ignored. So, you know, NIOSH has been a, a resource that we have paid for for decades and was sidelined in this entire process. Yeah. And to add to what David just said, studies out of NIOSH 10 years before this pandemic that showed that masks made of different materials could be effective at reducing the wearer's inhalation dose, right? And it, it's amazing to me that at the start of this pandemic, it was, yeah, masks are ineffective, don't wear masks, whatever you do. Their own research <laughs> suggested otherwise. I'm gonna I'm gonna direct to some of the some of the Q and A in the chat here that I think uh, some questions. Um, one of the one of the questions, Jesse asks, uh, "What are your thoughts on ionizers in terms of questionable technology?" And we'll keep, let's keep brand names out of it, because I'd like to stay on the they air. <laughs> they didn't work back then. They don't work now. They are generally undersized to achieve what they can be uh, used for in industrial situations. So you know, ionizers that essentially are electrostatic precipitators can work in, you know, uh, removing particulate from a stack emissions. Uh, but in the indoor environment, generally it's, it's bringing a knife to a gunfight and yeah. not, not effective. Right. So, you know, uh, back then what David's referring to was mostly unipolar ionization systems, um, which had, uh, and I've tested a number of those colleagues at the University of Texas tested a whole lot of them. Um, largely ineffective at removing particles in indoor spaces. Uh, the clean air delivery rates were about a 10th to a 20th of a good HEPA filtration system that's roughly the same cost. 
now there's a lot of you know a lot of interest in bipolar ionization, uh, un unproven, but I will say that there's uh, three independent groups that have been doing research on bipolar ionization effectiveness in recent months. Um, and a, a great paper just came out that showed that from the standpoint of, <clears throat> of particle removal, uh, almost negligible in indoor spaces. And a second one that's out of the University of Wisconsin that hasn't been published yet, <clears throat> that's finding exactly the same thing. One was an induct system, one was a standalone system. Uh, and that there is some uh, there is some chemistry associated with these units that generate byproducts. I'm, I'm not nearly as concerned about that, to be, to be honest, because the byproduct levels are relatively low as I am with the fact that they don't look like they're, you know, nearly as effective of un as units that we know are effective. So, Well, one of the things in, in uh, past studies with older <laughs> units, we, we did see... Um, as you know, all, uh, these tests of new devices are done on new devices. As the units age, as they wear, as they accumulate material. Well, they're done in chambers as, too, David. I mean, they're they're not necessarily done in real world oh, yeah. world situations they're, they're, either. They're done in a way that allows you to actually quantify the results. But as units degrade over time, the production of those byproducts can become significant but that's way out of the window of testing that's done on brand new mm -hmm. units. So I, I you know. Stick to proven yeah. technologies. Yeah, yeah. HEPA yeah. filtration, if you're gonna do standalone HEPA filtration. Well, well, if you're dealing with particles, right? You know, certainly we, we haven't gotten yeah. into gas phase filtration because this is a COVID show, but um, uh, those of you, again, in the in the studio audience, if you'd like, like to actually <laughs> pose the question, uh, you know, directly, uh, please raise your hand and we'll get your mic unmuted so you can, uh, you know, chime in and actually ask a question. Yeah, and um, I just wanted to say thank you very much for answering that. I appreciate it. Wanted sure. to be listening, but thank you so much. Patrick, here we go. The uh, EPA has an hour and a half training session online. I'm looking at it on my left screen, the ventilation and virus mitigation in schools. They talk all about MERV-13. They don't talk about HEPA. And it, they're insinuating that, that in the indoor commercial HVAC systems that HEPA is, it doesn't work. It's just too restrictive. Oh, then they make a mention that you can put a thicker filter in. If you put a thicker HEPA filter that, that they're implying that works. With more media. More surface media. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So well, I, I, the, I, go ahead, David. I'd say in most instances with existing HVAC systems, HEPA is not uh, appropriate to put into a central HVAC system. Right. Uh, MERV 13, the reason they talk about that is that's about what a, a standard uh, commercial air conditioning system can manage. Otherwise, you'll literally, you, you, the, the fan doesn't have enough power to pull the air through and will can sometimes burn up. So when we talk about HEPA, we're really talking about standalone units that are sitting there and that are size designed and constructed to pull, you know, move adequate airflow through uh, that filter. So they're, they're, set, they're, they're disconnected from the air conditioning. Air, air handling system. So uh, Chris 13, what's the effective rate of MERV 13? Isn't it up there in a couple micron? Yeah, so MERV 13 filters, if properly seated in a mechanical system, uh, if we're looking at the particle sizes that can convey uh, this coronavirus, um, can remove about 90 to 95% of those particles. It's gotta okay. be properly seated. Good. Yeah, no, that's good. Okay. Take it. If I didn't you get it. that much. 
Uh, so Christy Crocker, you had a question uh, earlier that I uh, slid over in the chat, but you're asking about what guidance would uh, would you give to individuals who have been va vaccinated at this point, as far as what you should do now, if you got the vaccine, are you, are you a superhuman? Are you bulletproof? You just asked it. Perfect. Yeah, but, but you can elaborate. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, you know, I just want you guys to know that any response you give me is likely to end up in one of our COVID Tip Tuesday posts. So I'm looking for fodder for what to tell people. <laughs> wow. That's like newsjacking at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to do that, but. That's all good. Yeah. I, I really right. am looking so, for, for an answer to that because because I just, you know. So, yeah. All right. So there's there's. There's a lot of unknowns still. The studies that were that were commissioned and performed by the pharmaceutical companies on the efficacy and safety of the vaccinations are very limited, and they were not able to answer a lot of the questions of does this prevent me from spreading it? Or does this prevent me from contracting it at all? And so there's the the big uh, blind spot that we that we have. I would say. Once you get to, uh, I'll say general community immunity, herd immunity, however you want to discuss it, where we've stopped general community spread, then vaccination yeah. does protect everybody. Um, but public health officials and, and myself are hesitant to say, it's not time to, you know, it's not time to go party and, 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 and drop all restrictions because there's still a lot of unknowns and the virus continues to okay alter, to vary, to mutate, and has the potential to bypass the efficacy of the, of the vaccine. So we're, we're halfway through the marathon, best I can say. And this goes back to the issue of precautionary principle that we talked about earlier, right, is why rush back uh, into thinking that everything's normal uh, when we can just wait a little bit longer and make sure, as David said, uh, that we find out more about what's that. We don't know how long vaccinations last. We don't know whether it's, you know, you're going to be safe or immune for six months or a year or five years. We don't even know that. So there's still a lot of data to be collected yeah. by public health officials to start answering. And, and the downside, the downs, I'm sorry, the downside of screwing this up, the downside of going back can literally roll back the entire clock just day one. If, if, if a variant comes out and becomes effectively, um, you know, it, 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 it defeats the vaccine. And we certainly don't want to do that. So Ed Light has a comment on the epidemiology aspects of this. Ed? So the, the bottom line on uh, COVID is what the epidemiology tells us. And what this very consistently shows is that ventilation, filtration, and sanitizing play a very minor role that nearby transmission is really where most of this uh, infection's occurring. And importantly, uh, HVAC systems and to a large extent cleaning don't affect that. And so in our work with schools and building owners and the public, the priorities I suggest are number one, do everything you can on personal infection control measures. And 
uh, and uh, certainly as a precaution, uh, modest changes and uh, cheap <laughs> changes to ventilation, cleaning. Now, uh, by far the biggest uh, uh, step in many, many buildings in virtually all schools is just get catch up on your maintenance, get the systems working the way they're supposed to. That, that's a great advantage. The one place that epidemiology actually shows us an effect is in very poor ventilation and air movement that actually concentrates the virus in the breathing zone. And the best assessment is to go around and find those places and fix them or keep people out of them. And so what I see the IAQ researchers, practitioners uh, doing generally is maximize ventilation, maximize filtration, maximize sanitizing. And I think that's not really science-based. And Ed, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here and, and, and everyone doesn't know this, but Ed and I have a very similar background. We both worked for the health departments in different states and suffered through them as the often the lone industrial hygienist and uh, and, and dealing and surrounded by a sea of epidemiologists. And epidemiology has now become it's come out of the realm that the term and the capabilities of epidemiologists have really risen to the top during this pandemic. Would everybody agree? I mean, you know, my grandmother now is no, now knows what an epidemiologist is. We, oh, okay. we need to step back and remember, epidemiologists can't prove anything. Epidemiologists test associations. Epidemiologists generate hypotheses. They do not get into the mechanisms. Ed and I agree on 95% of the stuff he's talking about. Okay, but let's be cautious and a little tentative about Edicts from epidemiologists who don't understand the mechanisms will use data that is frankly garbage. They will use exposed versus unexposed based upon job titles. And we know that there's always exposure in those environments. So epidemiology has a place, but we need to be cautious about looking to epidemiologists for causal analysis and for de determining um, cause and effect. They can show association. They cannot show cause and effect. There has to be the mechanism. So I want to get Ross in here um, because he's, he's been sitting on a question for a long time. Oh, and, and of course, I wait till you get away from your camera. That was just unfair. Yeah. Now, I've been listening <laughs> to a lot of the... Um, Speech. First thing I'll tell you is I'm a commercial HVAC guy. Um, going, I think, first to the individual HEPA systems does have advantages only because it's very hard to get standard HEPA filters. The filter manufacturers have told me that 50 to 60% of the raw materials used to make them 
has been taken by the government to make uh, PPE equipment. Um, the other problem is when you stick a HEPA filter in a unit, you know, not geared towards it, you're going to mess up airflow because of static pressure. And, you know, they say, oh, to use um, MERV 13 filters. MERV 13 filters are better than, you know, what's out there. But a lot of, not just COVID, but a lot of viruses can still go right through the MERV 13 like it's, um, you know, Japanese uh, paper, real thin. And when you were mentioning about schools, you know, why don't they do the right things? Most public school districts buy by lowest price. So even if they have the information, they'll put it out to bid on systems like in Pennsylvania CoStar, New Jersey, every state has their buying associations and the low bidder gets it. And it doesn't matter that the low, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, that's been the case though. That, that, I mean, that, that's been the case forever in public work though, right? Um, what's better is when you work with individual, let's say municipalities, as long as it falls under $10,000, that municipality can make a decision, but school districts, because of their size, almost anything you do is going to go over that. Well, practically speaking, you're right. But if you write the bid or the bid spec tight enough and performance base, you know, NASA get used to at least could launch rockets on that. So, you know, it, it does come down to how, how defined, how refined, how granular, how specific is the specification. And it doesn't, and don't give, you know, the option to put a MER 13 where a HEPA filter should be clearly um, define the, the project and, 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 you know, you may be able to even go through the current procurement systems, but, you know, if you're in time of emergency, we've just lost over half a million people in this country. We were losing people at a faster rate than during world war II. Oh, that's not an emergency. Yeah. yeah let me, uh, Oh no, I, I'm, I agree with you, but here's the other problem that I've seen as a contractor when they choose the low bidder, they don't necessarily do what's in the specs. And the districts don't have the right people, have enough people to follow behind them. I've opened up air handlers that are supposed to have X number of filters at a certain mm -hmm. size. And maybe half the filters are the right ones, but they also 
they take off the gappers and never put them back so the air bypasses yeah well, but we see that ross we see that all the time too yeah because i've been a consultant for years too working in public schools and you know the the project management companies they 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 you know, portray a great show of what they're going to actually do to run the project. But when it comes down to it, it's all about getting done on time and opening the building. And they honestly half the time don't care. I mean, I, that's what it seems yeah. to be. Rich, yeah. you, you, you had a comment though. I want to get, well, you I just on. wanted to, a couple things. First of all, I, just to, to, to put this to rest, I, nobody's saying HEPA filtration in mechanical systems. When we, when we talk about HEPA filtration, it's standalone units. Um, it, it just, it's impractical to put HEPA in mechanical systems. And remember with respect to MERV-13 that the virus does not, the virus is not naked. You know, the virus is embedded in particles and all of the research to date suggests that, that we're looking at particles that are on the order of 0.5 microns and above uh, as conveyors of this uh, coronavirus. And so MERV-13 filters can actually do a pretty good job with that spectrum of, of particles, especially when you get up above 0.5 microns. Um, I wanted to say that I've done a lot of work with schools in Texas. And in Texas, there is across the board, almost all the schools I've worked at, intentionally, intentional reductions in, in, uh, in ventilation rates in classrooms. And it's all about energy conservation. It is all about energy conservation. And it's all about money. It has nothing to do with climate change. It's just school districts trying to save money. I've worked with schools in the Rio Grande Valley where the outdoor air intakes actually have boxes over them or they're cardboard and duct taped over them to basically try to shut them because they can't completely shut and they do everything they can to shut the outdoor air intakes. I mean, this is sort of the state of schools. And when you get into rural areas, it can get, it's pretty horrible, you know, just in pre-pandemic times, mm -hmm. what, what schools are dealing with, the lack of money they have, the fact that they're trying to pinch pennies. I mean, literally pinch pennies on energy to save money. It's um, schools need a lot of help and schools are getting a big dump of money right now, a big dump of money. And, and are wasting that money. And that was a frustrating thing to me is wasting that money on approaches that are gonna have no impact on reducing people's inhalation dose. I just, so just wanted to add that and clarify the, the, the issue on HEPA especially. I, I think that's a valid point. I'm gonna let one more question come in. Terry's been waiting for, uh, patiently for some time now. So Terry. Terry Sofer, are you still on? There he is. He, there we go. Um, yeah, I want to commend uh, both doctors uh, for their uh, frank acknowledgement of the failure of U.S. Uh, institutions and medical leaders uh, early on in the pandemic uh, in terms of failing to recognize airborne transmission as a significant factor. Um, and anyone who's followed any of the literature related to pandemics knows that for more than 12 years, the National Academy of Science has done study after study, analyzing what the US has to do to prepare for the next pandemic. Uh, most of those recommendations uh, certainly were not implemented this time. Um, <clears throat> my question is this, um, if um, given the failure of our institutions and medical leaders in this pandemic with recognizing the importance of airborne transmission. What are your thoughts about what can be done to get CDC um, and leaders in the US 
uh, to take the precautionary approach and to focus on airborne transmission control preparation for the next pandemic, which climate change science tells us we're going to see more of and more frequently. Keep the pressure on and hold them to account. And um, I'm not anti-CDC by any means. I think the CDC does great things and there's lots of great scientists in CDC. But as I said, CDC is not filled with building scientists. CDC does what they do well. And uh, I think that what, one of the things we've learned from this pandemic is that we do need to bring people together. There needs to be building scientists working with, as Ed said, you know, epidemiologists. Building scientists need to work closer with epidemiologists and industrial hygienists and engineers and science communication experts. Um, right now, we're really siloed as a nation. We are really siloed as a nation and that really hurt us at the start of this pandemic and continues to hurt us, quite frankly. When you're, when you're an agency uh, or the World Health Organization and you took one approach at the beginning, uh, it is hard for you to go back and admit that you're wrong because that's an admission of culpability and that's just not gonna happen, period. Um, but had we brought all the best minds together from different disciplines early on, almost the Manhattan Project, let's get, let's get the best and the brightest together early in this pandemic, we could have made the right decisions and we didn't and we're paying for well, it now. Rich, I, I would say that many of those right decisions, as Terry pointed out with the National Academies, they'd already yeah. been made. Right. Those decisions, those playbooks, those uh, plans for preparedness. Uh, how many heard about what FEMA was doing during the pandemic, other than like one or two days? FEMA should have been the agency out front in most of this, being the traffic cop directing resources. There was a failure from the top plans and preparation that had been uh, made for decades was set aside and people tried to make it up as they went along, pulled this out of their mm -hmm. hip pocket. And guess what? We lost people at a faster rate. A an invading army could not have done a better job of killing Americans. If we had had a force in this country that took a thousand people a day, 1500 people a day into the town square, put a bullet in their head, that would have gotten people's attention, right? But no, we let people die in anonymity, alone, in hospitals from suffocation. No cameras, not broadcast. What we did in this country by setting aside the plans, preparation, and dismantling the systems that had been in place that we paid for as taxpayers. We paid for those systems to be built and we let them go fallow. Um, I, I, would, I would say our overall, um, the United States failed in this response to this pandemic. And if we don't change, if we don't realize it, if we don't, as I say, have that come to Jesus meeting, um, we will suffer this again. So that's my great news. I want to, um, SM, I, I actually don't know your whole name here. I just see SM, you're unmuted. Can, can you pose your question? I'm going to let you take it right to the group. Hey guys, my name is Steve. And what I'm seeing in schools and commercial buildings is that the HVAC systems are not set up to handle the removal of COVID from the air. 
and they're not even doing such a good job on minimizing its surface viability because the humidity is, is not being controlled enough. So to develop that more, I'd say that my experience in both commercial and residential is a downstream of the coil, I've got mold growth. And that's pretty much a constant in these buildings. And that the filtration is not up to dealing with a, a 0.5 micron. And that the air ducts are dirty and they're emitting it anyhow. So I see the value in bringing in more fresh air. And I like the idea of monitoring my CO2 relative to my TVOCs. And of course, not having my humidity go up too high. I'm, I'm here in Raleigh, North Carolina. But now as I bring in more sensors, I'm seeing that I'm increasing my ground level ozone and my NO2. And I don't have a technology for dealing with that. My point being is that I'm kind of stuck with ventilation increasing to try and minimize my impact on COVID. But if COVID is hitchhiking on a particulate and I'm and my HVAC is not really dealing with that because of the placement of the returns, then what am I left with to try and do something? Granted, I don't want the mold, I want the fresh air for a lot of IAQ reasons, but wouldn't it be nice if I had some active air disinfection? And so then that brings me to the question of the far UVC lighting being used in occupied spaces. And I wonder on your take on that technology. Um, can be very effective if done right. So, the, you know, there you're not removing particles from air, you're inactivating viruses that are in the particles that are in air. Uh, it's trickier. There are, there are, it's, um, it's, there are less people that know how to do that right than, ha than to do filtration right. Um, but, I mean, it's a proven technology for, you know, 50 plus years. And uh, what you need to do is avoid uh, contact of the uh, of the radiation field with anybody's skin or eyes. Uh, so I've seen some that have put in um, false ceilings in restaurants and recirculate air through the false ceiling and have the UV uh, upper room UVGI in the false ceiling. Um, that can be pretty effective. And so, but it's it's something that's probably not going to be as cost effective for schools to try to put in every classroom as much as perhaps in a cafeteria or something like, you know, larger space. Uh, and, you know, something like uh, portable HEPA filtration can do a, at a much lower cost, you yeah. know, give you the, a better bang for your buck, David. I, I, I call the, the UV, Richard's exactly right on that. It is proven technology, uh, but I, I call it beer, uh, it's champagne on a beer budget. Okay, you're already talking with an organization that is pinching pennies and trying to make the most out of what they have. Uh, UV is uh, sophisticated. Um, it often requires filtration anyway in order to help reduce the particulate load so you're not masking, uh, especially in airstreams. And frankly, most schools will get a bigger bang for their buck by going with standalone HEPA filtration units uh, rather than UV. Um, most UV systems I run across in buildings are abandoned. Yeah, I, I wanted to add one more thing, and this kind of comes back to comments made earlier. Um, you know, uh, this is, a, in my opinion, to, to the greatest extent, this is an airborne infectious disease. You can get, you can, you can uh, inhale virus-laden particles in close contact in that more concentrated stream 
that's coming out of an infector's mouth or in what, you know, background air in a space. All of the studies that I've been, I've been studying this for the last several months. If you look at typical concentrations in the breathing zone in close contact, three feet, four feet, two feet, five feet away from an individual, uh, and you look at background levels of part of respiratory particles that come out of somebody's respiratory system. So co close contact versus background. The, the ratio of those two concentrations in, in the breathing zone is anywhere from about three to seven. So 10 minutes with an infected individual speaking directly at you or breathing directly at you, 10 minutes in close contact is perhaps 30 minutes to 70 minutes in background air. I do believe that both of those can lead to infection. The best thing you can do for close contact is have universal mask wearing. That is number one. And, and that's the, uh, that is something that school districts have to do. And those school districts that aren't doing it uh, are negligent in my opinion. So that's number one, right? Uh, that's how you deal with the close contact issues. I do believe that mixing between individuals is important as I said before. And so that's another way of reducing close contact inhalation dose. The, the background stuff where you're spending 30 minutes or 50 minutes and having the same inhalation doses if you were with an infector for 10 minutes, the background stuff is ventilation, uh, in, improved filtration and mechanical systems and portable HEPA filtration systems. Those are the proven technologies, right? So from my perspective is we do those things, right? universal mask wearing, and then something else, whether it's increased ventilation or HEPA filtration or some combination of the two uh, is what we do to protect that far field. So that's it, that's it. And we should be stressing those things over and over again. It deals with close contact, inhalation of virus laden particles in close contact, and it deals with, with stuff if you're 20 feet away from somebody, that's it. Don't screw around with anything else. That's it. So I'm going to have to jump in and cut it off because we're way over time. Um, Joe Medosh, our co-host, has somehow uh, survived a bout with uh, a poison ivy vine, and and uh, you're going to you're going to come in and ask the the final question like you always do, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Good to be here, even if it's only at the end. But uh, on a side note, I'm actually in California working with Mark Hernandez out of the oh. University of Colorado Boulder, and our study that he's doing at a restaurant is about the combination of ventilation, filtration, and mixing. And he has a really strong theory that you definitely, as uh, Dr. Corsi says, you must be mixing these uh, the air in order to get good results. So we're actually doing a study out there uh, right here, right now. So in, in the process, I ended up with poison ivy and had to uh, not go down for the last day. So here's, here's my question, because we heard several people um, respond with a variety of information that I am not sure where they got it from and some others are wondering too. So my question is for both of you is so who are your trusted sources or, or who do you go to to be like, you know what, when I want to say something besides reading papers all day long, like you probably both do, who, who do you feel like, you know what, this is a trusted source for all of us to go to to find great information about the conditions we talked about today? So David, do you want to go first or I can back? So, so you guys passing that potato. Well, I, I mean, I, I will, uh, I'll toot our own horn as industrial hygienists. The American Industrial Hygiene Association has a, a, a I'll say a dispassionate, unbiased uh, COVID resources uh, website uh, intended to speak to um, 
you know, business operators, owners, employees, uh, ACGIH, American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, again, has some really good resources. Um, NIOSH, also some good information. Uh, most places are a workplace for someone. And so if you look at it in that fashion, healthcare, residential, long-term care, even apartment buildings, it's a workplace for someone and um, even schools. So that, I, that, that's an area where I, I wouldn't hesitate to, to direct somebody. Yeah, so be, before I answer, I wanna say, Joe, uh, just, just to let you know, and you can kid him about this, that Mark Hernandez and I were undergraduates together way back in the 1970s. And um, <laughs> um, you can uh, kid Mark about how long his hair used to be back in the late 70s. Um, Wait, it, wait! You need to see a picture of him. He, he, his hair is back down behind. The, oh, his, he's got the COVID hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he got the COVID hair big time. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, I agree with everything David said, and I would add ASHRAE, the American Society for Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, for specific information on ventilation and filtration. I'm going to name three individuals who I look to a lot. Uh, Jeff Siegel, who's at the University of Toronto, is, in my opinion. One of the, if you combine building science and, and, and aerosols, uh, Jeff is great at both of them. He's a North American treasure. And I think Jeff is one. Lindsay Marr, I look to for a lot of information on airborne viruses and particles. She's been doing great research in that area for 10 to 15 years now. And has, you know, we've all heard her name and she's been a great source of information on, uh, on this. Lindsay visited me at Portland State University the summer before the pandemic and gave a seminar on her work on airborne viruses. And little did we know at that time how important her work was gonna be. And the third is Don Milton at University of Maryland, who's just, you know, I, I think he's, yeah. he's airborne infectious uh, disease God, for lack of a better word. Don's done fantastic research on influenza viruses and now on, on uh, this coronavirus. and. You know, those are the three people that I look to, that I communicate with a lot. The, the mm -hmm. last one would be Hugo Lee in Hong Kong, who is really immersed in SARS in SARS one. Uh, I contacted Hugo at the very beginning of this pandemic, back in like late February of 2020, and I said, Hugo, I'm you know looking at the data, I'm doing modeling. This sure looks airborne to me. And he said, he said, Rich, it's absolutely airborne. He said, What the hell are you guys doing? I mean, those were I think his exact words. So those are four individuals I look to as, as real experts in the field. Uh, thanks. And what I didn't mention, and many people on this call would admire to say that we also look to both of you for great information, and we appreciate all that you're doing in our industry and how you educate all of us regularly. So we appreciate your efforts. Thank you. So it's that time, isn't it, Joe? It is that time. So it's actually um, it's actually 19 minutes past that time. But uh, you know, we we appreciate our guests for staying with us and. Uh, you know, both the audience and our uh, panelists here. Um, so, so we're ending early. We're ending early. We're, we're really not ending early. I mean, there's no, you know, that's, that, that's that whole, that's like daylight savings time. You know, is it really daylight longer or, you know, are we just pushing it anyway? Uh, Joe, tell us, tell us about uh, why we should be concerned with some of the stuff you're doing with Hayward score. Yeah. So I work for Hayward score. I'm a healthy building scientist and you can go online to haywardscore.com and get your free assessment of your home. It's to ask you, a variety of questions about, you know, your habits, your conditions in your home. And in the process, you probably learned something about how your home could be impacting you. So uh, we ask about symptomology. So it's free. 
and uh, we try and give you some advice on what you can do or how you may be able to work with a contractor. So uh, I believe it's a great resource for anybody on any level to try and learn more about how you can make your home healthier. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and I'll do a shameless plug for Healthy Indoors. Uh, a couple things going on. So uh, Healthy Indoors Magazine, uh, the March issue's out. The digital edition is available at healthyindoors.com. Those of you who have your free subscriptions probably got an e-blast from us uh, several hours ago. So uh, by all means, uh, take a look at it. If you don't have a subscription, it's still free. Go to healthyindoors.com. You can uh, get to it there, uh, along with a lot of other things. That's so the magazine. You know, there's there's the magazine uh, if this ever loads. Wow. I'm on my slow computer, guys. I apologize. Um, the other thing is you for the Healthy Indoor Show, there, there's the current uh, edition. Very good uh, cover story that Susan Valenti is responsible for. You can also go to the Healthy Indoors Show if you'd like to see um, any recordings from our past shows for this past year. Uh, we also have uh, a whole backlog of uh, audio podcasts, too. Every show goes off as, as an audio podcast, so that's another option for you. And uh, here on our community, this is uh, an all-new thing that we're doing. Um, you know, don't watch the video right now, but uh, basically what this is is a new platform, an engagement fl platform that we're launching with Healthy Indoors that will allow you to network and communicate with other people in the industry from the research side to practitioners to uh, manufacturers to everybody we're basically setting this up to give you a place to network share communicate and uh, ultimately we'll be putting live events streaming there doing all kinds of great stuff so this is something you should definitely take take advantage of you can learn more about it by going to the uh, healthy indoors website and clicking on the community button it'll take you there uh, for the time being it's going to be uh, free and available uh, our pro, a pro version, there'll always be a free version available too for people. So uh, we're we're viewing ourselves uh, more as the uh, hosts and facilitators of this. So it's not just going to be a healthy indoors centric type environment. Uh, we're looking for groups to spawn out of that and lots of communication and discussion. So real excited about that. Very close to launch. Um, so that'll happen uh, probably in the next couple of weeks. So with that, next week's show, I will remind you guys, we have a great one coming up next week, uh, Claire Barnett. Uh, and a couple of other representatives from the Healthy Schools Network will be on to discuss uh, Healthy Schools Week, which happens on the 6th of April. So that'll be on our April 1st show. And then on the 15th, uh, uh, Susan's uh, logged out of here right now, but um, we have a really interesting show. There was uh, a discussion that came up uh, a few weeks back uh, from uh, uh, Bud uh, Offerman actually published a paper on uh, the snake oil sales in, in the industry. So we're going to have Bud Offerman on and some other people, and we're going to hammer down on this topic. And I guarantee it's going to be merciless. Um, we're really, we're going there. Um, I think it's long overdue. Uh, Susan and I, I had a long discussion about that while I was driving back from Mass last night. And uh, quite frankly, I think it's, you know, and I think our, our guests here will concur. There's, there's, it's really easy to throw things out there about what's going on in the industry, but let's have some solutions. Let's talk about what our alternatives are, right? Throwing stones is real easy. So, uh, and again, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. We'll have, uh, we'll have some great guests on. So uh, with that, um, thanks so very much to Dr. Richard Corsi, Dr. David Krause for uh, taking time out of your busy days to be here with us. Um, so thanks guys. Uh, it was great. I wish we had two hours. I mean, actually, just, we could have, we unfortunately scraped the surface, so we'll have we'll have you back if you're available. Um, Thanks so for having us, Bob. Yeah, thank you so much. 
Thanks. Everybody. Always a pleasure. So, so with that, um, uh, it's going to be time to bid adieu again. Uh, so for the Healthy Indoors Live Show and Healthy Indoors Magazine, I'm Bob Krell. Um, until next time, uh, we'll see you same bat time, bat channel, <laughs> 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. or a little bit later, Eastern time, uh, here at HealthyIndoors.com and a host of other online places. Uh, so we'll see you next week. So in between now and then, please stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you soon. Bye.